Right, good morning, everyone. I hope you're all well. There's certainly a good buzz in the room, and I've got to say, I mean, this is, I think this is the first time I've done this in 18, 19 months. Um, I got quite used to preaching to a screen, having my notes on the left and the people on the right, and just kind of talking to myself almost and hoping that something is, is landing. But this is, this is really special, um, and, and I'm really happy to be here, but I'm guessing I might have to take a breather every now and again. Um, as I see responses, and, and just get used to the fact that they're human beings in front of me. So if I, if I stumble, um, give me grace and listen to God's words, not my performance, if, if I could ask that. A little bit about me, my name is Jeremy Douglas-Jones, I'm one of the elders here at Real Life Church. Um, I'm married to Becky, we have three children, Joel, who is now miraculously 19, we managed to get him through all of that. He's at university, second year physics, and that is a mystery to me. Absolutely no clue where he got a brain to be able to deal with physics. Definitely didn't come from me. Maybe it came from his mother. Um, and then Caitlin, who is in her final year, year 13, and Isaac, who is in his final year at primary, who's just gone out to, to kids' work. Uh, we're going to be in, in the, the series that we've been looking at, Well With My Soul. If you could pull out your Bibles in the meantime and get yourself to 1 Kings chapter 18, we're going to be reading from verses 20 through to 40. But before we get there, um, just to run through what we've been up to as a church. So for those of you that have been in life groups, you'll be aware that we've been in the well-being journey. It started um, in the last few weeks. We've Last week we read, sorry, we uh, read week two in the book and we watched the video on, on physical well-being. Now, the truth is I missed life group this week, so I, I watched the video myself and I've been reading along and it's been a tough one for me. Um, physical well-being is an interesting one for me because, you know, I grew up being very fit, but I also grew up not caring about being very fit. Kind of fitness was a, a sort of byproduct of what I enjoyed doing. So, um, you know, eating the right food and, and just getting out in the surf or skating or, or, or whatever it was that I was doing, I, I did that often and I loved what I was doing. And when I moved to the UK, and the truth is I'm, you know, very soon moved to Birmingham in the middle of the country, very far away from the coast. And suddenly it became apparent to me that if I wanted to stay fit, I'm going to have to think about it and I'm going to have to go out of my way and possibly do something that I hate doing. Maybe that's too strong a word. Don't like doing. So uh, Stuart will know this. He's a natural runner. He enjoys running. I've got really short legs. I'm not built for running. Um, but I have a good low center of balance. So what I do know is if I hit a root or something, I'm probably not going to fall and smash my face. So I started running. That's something I've been doing. But I have noticed that uh, I let it slip a lot. And I, I do fall back into to old patterns. So, so I have let my physical fitness slip. I've let what I eat slip. And the challenge has been laid down. So watch the space. And I'll let you know how... I get on. So there you go. Some of you have made yourselves accountable to somebody. I've made myself accountable to all of you. Um, so please do, do keep me on track. Um, for those of you that haven't started, it's not too late to get involved. Get, get a book. 
Um, I think there may be some around and get into a life group and there will be time to catch up. Every time we have church at prayer, that's a catch-up week and an opportunity for us to get back in line with the rest of the group. A health warning though, as for me, it's going to bring stuff to the surface um, and you need to face it and you need to walk through it with Jesus and with friends. So alongside that, we're, we're preaching through the sermon, looking at Elijah, well with my soul. And it, it kind of runs alongside what we're doing in Life Group. There's, there's a really interesting story with Elijah where he has some really high highs and some really low lows. And we can learn a lot about our own personal well-being from the journey that Elijah goes on. So we're going to be looking at that. We're in week four at the moment, and if you've missed any of the, the preceding sermons, you can catch up online. Go onto our website, and you'll find the podcast there. I wanted to start very quickly by just looking at why Kings was written. So, yes, it was, it was history, but that wasn't primarily the reason it was written. The history of the kings of Israel and Judah was already documented, it was already written and it was available, but this account was written during the exile, and it was written as a reminder to Israel who had felt like they had lost their identity, had lost their hope, and had lost um, the inheritance that God had, had promised them. It was, it was a reminder to them that the actions leading to and the reason for the exile was um, their own. It was their responsibility. It was a recounting of the, the sort of spiritual downward spiral of the, the kings of Israel and now Judah and their departure from the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it wasn't kind of a, a slow progressive departure. This was like a, a cycle of behavior that Israel primarily went through and Judah to a, a lesser degree. But it was a reminder of, of that spiral. And it is also an account of God calling His people back to Him, calling His people back to Him over and over again, predominantly through His prophets. So the books should really be called One and Two Kings and Prophets, because really it's about that dynamic of the kings representing the people and the prophets representing God, and God being the one that is actively seeking out restitution with his people. So a quick summary then of, of kings. It starts under the, the kingdom under Solomon, and this is like the apex of, of Israel. This, Solomon is, is David's son, and uh, Israel is experiencing great wealth, great um, popularity in, in the world because of the blessing that God has put on the nation and because of the wisdom that Solomon has. But what we see very quickly is that, that Solomon marries loads of foreign women. I'm not talking about a couple. I'm talking about hundreds. How many? 700. Just insane amounts of foreign women. And, and they turn his heart from God. And he ends up worshiping idols. And this is just a sort of cycle that we see in uh, Solomon, which we see going on throughout Israel. The prophet at the time was Nathan. And then Solomon dies, and his son Rehoboam reigns in his place. And, and Rehoboam is, is harsh and, and cruel. And I guess you could think of him as, as perhaps the, the, 
the third in the generation of a very wealthy dynasty that doesn't understand what happened to get him there. So he's just really harsh and cruel. He doesn't connect with the people. He's, he's, he's a mean, nasty old king. And so there is a, a, a rebellion. There is a rebellion led by Jeroboam. And at this time, Shemaiah was the prophet. But Jeroboam leads this rebellion, and it causes a split in the kingdom. So you have Israel that ends up in the north, and Judah that remains in the south and remains with Jerusalem as their capital and the temple being there and the, the sacrifices being offered at the temple there, but Israel in the north. And the prophet at that time was Ahijah. So Israel in the north starts setting up these sort of counterfeit worship places, worshiping golden calves and um, that, that, you know, there, there's lots of kings from lots of families, and the truth is, compared to, to Judah, the kings are, for the most part, not bad, but in Israel, they are just terrible. They are horrid, for, for uh, all of them are. Um, so, there are these prophets that go through this sort of lineage of kings as they go down, and I just wanted to kind of have a look at how these prophets related to the king. Number one, they were expected to address the king. Old Testament prophets were expected to address the king. Not only were they expected to address the king, but the words that they spoke when they spoke to the king or declared to, to Israel were synonymous with God's words. They were inseparable. They were the same. They spoke on behalf of God. So when a prophet spoke to a king, he was speaking God's words to the king, and those words carried the highest authority. The king was meant to submit to them. So the king may have been the highest um, authority on earth, but that king still was expected to submit to the authority of God, and the word of God was spoken to that king through their prophets. If you read one and two kings, you'll realize that most of them didn't do a very good job of listening to those prophets. So this, this sort of tradition started with Samuel, and Samuel was the last judge of Israel. There was a, a line of judges in Israel, and the people came to Samuel, and they complained to him. They said, look, this just isn't working out. All the other nations have kings, and look how wealthy they are, and look how, how um, big their armies are, and we're just not doing very well. So they complained to Samuel, and they demanded a king. And Samuel disagreed. He didn't want to give them a king. He said, God's not, God is your king, and you shouldn't have an earthly king, but eventually conceded. And Samuel was the first prophet to anoint the first king of Israel, being Saul. And he also was always in Saul's face. He was challenging Saul. He was reminding him of God's instruction and rebuking him for his failings and foretelling the consequences of his sin, but always offering a, a way back to God's will. And then Samuel anointed David to be king. And then since Samuel, there has always been a prophet in Israel to follow in that tradition. He was expected to be in the presence of the king. He was expected to challenge them. It was dangerous for him. It infuriated the kings, but it wasn't strange. It wasn't out of place for a prophet to be in the audience of the king. I mean, I mean, most of them were weird, 
Let's not, let's not miss this. Most of these prophets were, were very odd, but it wasn't strange for them to be in the presence of the king and speaking to the king as though they were in authority over the king. That was their office. And what we've looked at in these last few weeks is really one king and his wife and one prophet and their relationship. And the first week, we were introduced to Ahab, who becomes the king of Israel and is worse than all the others. He's the most evil yet. And he marries Jezebel, who is a foreigner, um, but was so bad, was so conniving and, and so manipulative that we, we still call people Jezebels to this day if we, if we don't like the way that they manipulate us in a situation. She was that controlling. And she worshipped Baal. And Baal was the, the god of the storm. He was the god of rain and fertility. And they built temple, a temple to Baal in, in the capital city of Samaria. And Elijah appears and he confronts the king, which is not surprising, and declares that there will be a drought in the name of the Lord, a direct confrontation to what Baal claims to have control over, and then he just disappears into obscurity as that drought grips the land. And we learned that sometimes God takes us into a place of obscurity, and he hides us while he's doing his work around and sorting us out so that we're ready for the next step. And then in the second week, we see that that, that moves. The Lord moves Elijah to Zarephath, a place of refining. So he's moved from obscurity to refining, where he's humbled and he's shaped by what happens to him with the widow and her son and the provision and the fact that she is starving, but she feeds him, and then God continues to provide for them through this. And we learned that God uses difficulties to shape us, that difficulties aren't outside of the will of God. Difficulties are very often part of what He uses to shape us and prepare us for, for what He has called us to do. And then in week three, we saw that the Lord has moved Elijah from obscurity to refining and now into confrontation. He confronts Ahab and he confronts the prophets of Baal and he freaks out Obadiah by um, threatening his life because Obadiah thinks he's just going to disappear again. Um, and we learned a lot about Obadiah and his role in all of this. And we learned about ourselves that following the Lord will require us to face into confrontation. And I don't think that's a surprise to, to any of us. We, we live in a world that, um, that constantly challenges what we believe. And I think we, we often find ourselves in a place where we are potentially going to, to, to find confrontation. Now we're in the fourth week. And this is where it gets real. This is this is like the climax of Elijah's ministry. This is the smackdown at Mount Carmel. And um, even if, if you've never read it in the Bible, I bet you know the story because it's, it's one of those big ones that kind of persists through society and in our, our memory. Um, and the big idea in this text is that Elijah's obedience doesn't result in his hashtag blessed doesn't result in him getting what he wants. Elijah's obedience results in God being glorified. That's what it results in. And, and that we should be like Elijah. 
and that we should obey God's call and that we should take a stand for the glory of His name and nothing more. A lot of other stuff comes our way, but the purpose of our obedience is to glorify the name of God. And for it to be well with our souls, we need to not be pursuing all sorts of desires that fleet through our lives and that society tells us we should have. We should be trusting God's leading completely and be obedient to His leading. So the primary picture of 1 and 2 Kings is is of a God who consistently reaches out to his people and offers them restitution despite their stubbornness. And that's really important to hold on to as you read this because otherwise you're going to, all you're going to see is a God that judges and is harsh. But that's not the point of this text. This is a God that reaches out to his people while they are stubbornly fleeing from him and offers them way more than they deserve. They repeatedly turn from him until they are judged by being overtaken by a foreign nation and and sent into exile. But even then, even while they're in exile, he will not forsake them. Even, and, and that he will continue to work out his plan of redemption of Israel through a coming Messiah. That's always the promise in the Old Testament. It's not like this is a, a story that flopped, so God came up with plan B. The point was always towards the promised Messiah that would deliver Israel. And this hope is extended to his people while making it very, very clear that it's their fault that they're in exile and that God, despite their evil, has not forsaken them, and is going on ahead to make a way for their redemption. So this, this is a concept that theologians call, and you can write this down if you want, but you can forget it as well. Just remember the concept that they call it provenient grace. Provenient grace. Now, we know what convenient means, but why provenient grace? Essentially, it means that God extends grace to His people before they repent of their wrongdoing. He extends grace to them before they repent of their wrongdoing. And this extension of grace actually is active on the hearts of His people and causes them to repent. So the causation of the repentance is actually the grace of God. It's provenient. It's there before it's needed. And it causes what um, we need to to, to receive forgiveness. By rights, a just God should not extend mercy to an unrepentant people, but that is exactly what Yahweh does. And that's what makes him so different to to the religious picture of a, a God that judges. Whenever his people turn back to him, what they discover is that he's actually gone before them and prepared their way. And that's amazing. And I mean, that's when I look at the Old Testament and, and, and I always encourage you to look for Jesus. You just see him there. You just see him there all the time. And it's an important concept when we look at this text in the light of Christ, because when we look at this, we see God using a prophet to make a way for the people to be reconciled to God. But when we look at Christ, we see God. We see God becoming a way for his people to be reconciled to him. And not just for a moment, but for all eternity. So we're about to go into the text, but to summarize the immediate context, Elijah has reappeared from obscurity. He's made himself known to Obadiah, who calls King Ahab. And in this remarkable discourse, 
The position of king and prophet is put right. Remember I described the, the office of the prophet. It's put right here because Elijah tells Ahab what will be done. And Ahab agrees with Elijah. God's will won't be resisted. He is the ultimate authority, not the king. And his prophet's words are to be taken as his and to be obeyed. And then hilariously, the 450 prophets of Baal also agree to Elijah's plan. They don't, they don't go, hang on, Elijah, we just want to go and check with Baal if he's happy with this. We're just going to go and consult with him and make sure that you're not trying to pull the wool over our eyes and, 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 and pull a fast one on us. No, they agree to Elijah's challenge with, without, without question. So let's, let's get the text up. Let's start having a read and let's see how, how this goes down. Shall I move a little to the side so that you can read the text? Okay, so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Now, if you're not sure where Mount Carmel is, it's in the northwest of Israel and it's a kind of like a mountain ridge that that runs from southeast to northwest out onto a little peninsula into the Mediterranean. So it's surrounded by ocean on three sides, and then it runs down, and there's a kind of valley on its north side where um, there's a fault line, and there's a little brook at the bottom of it. And um, Haifa, Haifa is in the little bay uh, to the north of Mount Carmel in modern-day Israel. So, so they all gather at Mount Carmel, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping? Now, some, um, some translations say wavering. The, this word is an interesting one. It's, it's not quite limping. It's not quite wavering. It's more like a drunken dance. It's kind of like this sort of delirious back and forth kind of dance that you, you might see um, if you go out in the evenings to Broad Street and someone's had too much to drink and still got a song in their head, no one else can hear it, and they're kind of dancing around. It's kind of like that. How long will you go limping between two different opinions, kind of floating around? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And the people did not answer Him a word. Now, let's... Let's be honest, I mean, Elijah is the prophet of God, not Baal. And he's, he's not saying, don't follow Baal. He's just saying to the people, can you please make up your minds? Just make a decision. So, I, Elijah, I follow God. Jezebel follows Baal. Ahab follows Baal. The prophets follow Baal. But the people, we're not sure. Do they follow Baal? Don't they follow Baal? Are they kind of like drunkenly wavering between the two? The people were undecided. They were probably everywhere between the two. You know, Baal on one side, Yahweh on the other. The main motivation for the way they were wasn't necessarily conviction. It was really to avoid conflict. And we see this all the time in the world today, don't we? A lot of people avoid having a clear, decisive opinion on something simply to avoid conflict. They sit on the fence. It was clear from Jezebel and Ahab's behavior that they could not tolerate the worship of Yahweh. They were, they were, they were happy with, um, with you worshiping lots of other gods, 
They were happy with you having an idol to this, that, the next thing, as long as you went and did your, your Baal worship as well. But they couldn't tolerate worship of Yahweh because it just was not inclusive enough. It was exclusive. It was, it was Yahweh or nothing. You couldn't have Yahweh plus idols. That was never the way it was going to go down. And, and Jezebel couldn't handle that. Ahab couldn't handle that. And the, the result is anybody that claimed that Yahweh was God was was killed. So, so the people deferred an opinion. You know, that, let's be honest, they didn't much like Baal either. I mean, the idea of a God who demands child sacrifices couldn't have been massively appealing. I mean, you know, you, you know if you're just living your life and you, you're raising a family and you're thinking at some point a prophet of Baal might come and grab my kid because we need some rain, not great. I don't think they particularly liked Baal, but they really were indecisive. They didn't want to put their stake in the ground and make a decision because neither did they like the idea of being put to death because you dared to declare Baal as a false god. So here were these people, undecided and unwilling to make a commitment. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. So back in Back in a, a previous um, text, we, we heard how the prophets of the Lord were all slaughtered. And here is Elijah, the only one left. And Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God. Now, just a quick side note here. Some people say that Elijah was polytheistic, that he did believe in other gods, but just that Yahweh was the best one. He didn't. He was referring to Baal as a god here with a small g because they referred to Baal as God, but he did not believe in multiple gods. He believed in one God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. He did not believe that there were tribal deities that were all having a big fight up in the sky, and the way that panned out um, resulted in what life looked like on earth. That was never his faith. So, you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So the people saw it as, oh, this is a fair challenge. Let's see who wins this fight. And then we just go with the one who wins because clearly then we'll be on the winning side and everything will be good. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for you are many and call upon the name of your God but put no fire to it. It's amazing that he gives the 450 prophets of Baal the, 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 the choice to go first. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O oh Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped, same word, drunkenly around, like there was the song going on in their head, but they were 
clearly, I suppose, dehydrated, maybe a little deluded. They've been shouting for six hours, and no one's answered. Um, but they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is, he is musing, he's just having a good think, or he is relieving himself, you know, God's have to do that kind of thing too, or he's on a journey, you know, maybe he's on some kind of quest or, or voyage, or perhaps he's, he's asleep because we all need our sleep, and he thinks far better when he's had a good rest. I mean, who says that trash talking is a modern thing? You know, if you think of any modern sports team, part of the strategy is, is, is the game, part of the strategy is, is the set pieces, and part of the strategy is how you get inside your opponent's head. And, you know, here's Elijah getting inside his opponent's head, seriously, and they are getting desperate. So they cried out aloud, and they cut themselves after their customs with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. What's that? It's the evening offering. That's what that is. So they raved on all day, shouting and slashing and stabbing and limping. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. At this point, I'm reading it, and I'm going, man, this really shouldn't be surprising. I mean, let's be honest, effectively the God of Elijah stopped the rain for three years and Baal was unable to change that. So, I mean, how long was this guy's journey? How long has he been sleeping? What on earth has been going on? I mean, Baal is the fertility God. He's meant to be able to make it rain. For three years it hasn't. And surely by now they've figured out that at the very best, Baal is impotent compared to Yahweh. But more likely, he's not even there. And then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. Come near to me. Almost like he's saying, Join me as I do this. Join me as I worship Yahweh. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. He didn't just put up another altar or use the altar that the prophets of Baal were using. He repaired the altar of the Lord. So Mount Carmel is a high place. The temple's in Jerusalem. There's been an altar prepared on the high place dedicated to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, set aside for his worship. And it's been broken down by the prophets of Baal. And he repairs it. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And, and I'm just going, ah, this isn't actually a showdown. This isn't actually a competition. This is what Elijah is doing. This is what God has told Elijah to do. He is, he is reestablishing Mount Carmel as a place of worship to Yahweh. He is taking that high place back from Baal. 
And he's repairing the altar that represents Israel. And he's going through the process that the priesthood would to prepare a burnt offering to God as a substitute for Israel and their sin. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. Now, this, this is different. Clearly, the, uh, the, the, the priesthood wouldn't dig this trench. That trench was there for a different reason. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. This is like an American show. It's like, do it a second time. And off they went, do it a third time. And you think that's bad? Do it a fourth, you know, just kind of over the top. He's like, no, 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 no normal, I'm sorry. (laughs) No offense meant, I'm South African. It's just, it's going to happen at some point. (laughs) So, um, right, take take a breath. (laughs) So, I mean, the point is, hey, I'm not going to trick you here. No normal fire is going to get this job done. We're going to soak this, then we're going to soak it through, then we're going to soak the soaking until it's completely and utterly soaked. There's going to be so much water over the situation that, you know, if I light a match right now, we'll be here for two years and I still won't get this fire going. We might find out about that on Saturday, by the way, man. Um, so, so there they are, three times filled, drenched, soaked. This is a unique situation, you know, um, it's, 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 you know it's, it's, it's important that we understand that, um, that he didn't ask the prophets of Baal to do this, because there was never a question in Elijah's mind that maybe Baal would come through. He knew that they were set up for failure, but he was making it very difficult for a fire to catch. He didn't want anyone to think, oh, you know, you, you, you've, just, you've just played a trick on us here. So, so this is set up, and and then and at the time of the offering, the evening evening um, offering, offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near, and he said, "O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your." Word. This wasn't his plan. He's simply obeying God's command. This wasn't his clever play, and this isn't Elijah's victory. This is God's. Then he says, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. There's provenient grace. He's preparing the sacrifice that should be prepared by a repentant people. And he is setting it up, and then he says that you, Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Their hearts haven't turned back yet. Here's the prophet prophesying. You have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. No contest. Thanks for all that water. 
There's no limping here, no begging, no cutting, just a simple prayer, a simple, simple prayer that it would be known that Yahweh is God and that he answers, and then he answers in, in magnificent fashion. Normally the priests would light the offering and the smoke would billow up and they would, they would pray that the, the fragrance would be acceptable to the Lord and he would accept the offering. But this time, God explicitly accepts the offering of repentance by pouring out his wrath. That fire is not like the kind of fire you'd like on you. This is the wrath of God poured out on, fortunately, a substitute for Israel. That's his judgment being poured out there. And it doesn't just destroy the offering, it destroys the wood, it destroys the altar, it destroys the dust, it sucks up all the water. It's like, come on, let's not carry on arguing about this. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And I wish there was a paragraph break between those two lines, but there isn't. So the people fall on their faces, they say, he is Lord, he is God, and immediately Elijah says, seize the prophets and Slaughter them. And that's the end of the text. And there's a lot that we can learn from this text. There's a lot we can learn from Elijah. There's a lot we can learn about the prophets of Baal and from the people and from Ahab. But what I wanted to point out is this is not a prescriptive text. This is what we call a descriptive text. So it is not saying... This is what Elijah did. Now, all who read this must go and do exactly the same. You know, if, if, if we're in any doubt, okay, that's not what it's saying. So, um, it's telling a story about specific events in Israel's history, and it refers to specific people with a specific mandate from God. So, to be clear, when we read this text, the main takeaway should not be climb a mountain, sacrifice a bull, call down fire, and slaughter 450 people. That's not what we should do. Okay. Just making that clear. Okay, good. That was Elijah's job. Our job is different, and it is unique, and we're going to look at that. We're going to look at what we can learn. The second thing that I wanted to point out is that often we look at this as the ultimate smackdown, but that would be to miss the point. What we have here is the reestablishment of worship. And what Elijah has effectively done, what he has put right, is he's fulfilling the role of prophet and he is fulfilling the role of priest, isn't he? Because he is declaring God's will to the king and to Israel, and at the same time, he is performing the sacrifice, and he is mediating between God and his people. And, and the relationship with the, the, the king of Israel is in right order for the first time. So what we see is the, role, the offices of prophet, priest, and king working well for a time. He submitted to the authority of God's will. But what can we learn? What can we learn? And this, we're coming into land now. First of all, take a stand. 
That was Elijah's call to the people. Stop wavering. Stop being like those drunken fools, wobbling around, not quite sure where they're meant to be. Stop wavering between two things and make up your mind. Even if it means that you will come into conflict, take a stand. Take a stand. Secondly, know your place. Not in the American way, but just know your place. Like, we're not being rude here. Just know who you are and where you're meant to be. Elijah was a great prophet. He was a great prophet. But you know what? Jesus said that John the Baptist was greater. And John didn't perform greater miracles than Elijah. Nowhere near. I mean, there was some, some other remarkable stuff going on in terms of repentance in people's hearts. But he, he was declared as greater by Jesus. And he also said that we, the least of these, and the, the least in the kingdom, will be greater than John. We are greater than John. So if Elijah is a great prophet, John is declared as greater because of his proximity to Jesus because he gets to herald in the Messiah. So all the other prophets are looking to the Messiah, and they're great, but John is the greatest because, no, he doesn't perform great miracles, but he heralds in the king. And then we are even greater than John because we get to see everything that those prophets yearn to see with their own eyes. How amazing is that? Know your place. Elijah was a prophet. Now, this is a capital C prophet. You know, the gift of prophecy is one thing, but none of you will ever be. You will never, ever, 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 ever be a prophet like Elijah was because you will never hold the office of prophet and declare to the king like Elijah did. And your words will never, ever be equivalent with God's. So you will not be Elijah. Obadiah worked for the king. And some of you may be able to relate to Obadiah last week's, the week, two weeks ago sermon. For most of us, we have a role to play that is our own. And this is important for your well-being, whether you believe in Jesus or not. It is unique. And only you can fill that role. And you need to stop looking at what other people do. Sometimes I look at the smackdown and I think that's Instagram right there. That's Facebook. That's Twitter. That's everybody else whose lives we look at and we go, oh man, they just live on the mountain, don't they? Everything goes well for them. My life sucks. It's terrible. Listen. When we see Elijah's life, when we see the obscurity, when we see the preparation, when we see what happens after this text, that's most of our lives. Stop comparing yourself to what other people do and what other people proclaim publicly, the big things, and start listening to what God has called you to and be obedient to that. Be obedient to what He has commanded you and be satisfied with the fact that He has made you and placed you in the perfect place for what He's called you to do. And that leads to the third point. Be confident. Be confident in the will of God. Trash talk your enemies like old Elijah did here. You know, if he said it, it will come to pass. Don't be like those prophets of Baal that didn't even listen to Baal. They were just trying to bend their God to their will. 
running around, slashing their wrists. That's a bad practice. You should, shouldn't do that. It can be dangerous. Um, you know, becoming deluded, jumping around, demanding that he brings down fire. Bob didn't say to them once that that's what he would do. They were trying to manipulate him. Rather, be quiet and listen, which really means read God's word and pray. And if you think, well, what about listening to the Holy Spirit? Well, let me tell you what. Listening to the Holy Spirit doesn't work. It just doesn't work if you don't read God's word and pray. And what if you say to me, but Jeremy, I'm just not a reading kind of person. I, you know, I find, I find God's word dull and boring, and I, I far rather be like spontaneous and just listen to the Spirit and take, take, just go where He takes me. Listen, the Holy Spirit is like a fire that can only burn on the fuel of God's Word. And I know that's an illustration, but that's the truth. It, he, the Holy Spirit will, won't contradict the Word of God. He will bring the Word of God alive to you. He will cause it to burn inside of your heart, and you will take it from dead wood into living fire, but you need the Word of God. Some people have spoken to me, and I've, I feel like this sometimes, like so dry. Like, you know what? Sometimes you eat food that you don't like eating, but if you don't eat it, you die. Sometimes you just need to eat three meals a day, and sometimes you just need to read the Word of God and pray. Wow, that rhymed. I'm going <laughs> to... Can I have that extract? Thanks. Excellent. So you've got to, you've just got to do it. And, and you know what it does? There's a, a thinking in your head and there's a thinking in your heart. You know what consuming the word does? It changes the thinking in your heart. It changes those deep-seated thoughts that make you view the world in a certain way. And when the Holy Spirit sets that stuff alight inside your hearts, it gives you the confidence. It gives you the boldness. It gives you the humility that you're looking for. So listen and then obey in confidence. Fourthly, know that you're not alone. You look at this, you see provenient grace. God, God's grace preceding his people and finding a way to turn their hearts and cause them to repent. I've heard so many people say, oh, I found Jesus. Oh, I realized that I was in sin, so I repented and I said, Lord, you be my king as though it was all our doing, but anybody who's been saved any amount of time will look back and go, actually, now I see God's hand. I see how God moved all the way through my life and brought me to that place. I would never have repented if it wasn't for him. I would have never declared him as God, as my Lord, if it wasn't for him going before me. So he's turned your heart to him before you even knew you needed to. And he'll continue to go before you and give you what you need to do his will. Sinclair Ferguson, some of you may know him, some of you may not. If you want to find out more, Google the name. Sinclair Ferguson said this. It is misleading to say that God accepts us the way we are. Rather, he accepts us despite the way we are. He receives us only in Christ and for Christ's sake. What that means is he only receives us because when he looks at us, he sees Christ, not us. He's not going, oh, you're such a lovely little person. If he saw you without Christ, if Christ was moved out of the way, his wrath would come burning down on you. Then Christ stands as a substitute for us, 
Paul and Kay are like, oh, he's talking straight to us. <laughs> I'll look somewhere else. And, uh, and he sees Christ, and he accepts you despite who you are. And he does it for Christ's sake. Nor does he mean to leave us the way that he found us. He's not going to leave you wallowing in all of the stuff that makes you struggle, but to transform us into the likeness of his son. And finally, see Jesus in this text. And guys, I'm going to end here, so if you worship team, if you want to come up. But see Jesus in this text. Jesus is way better than Elijah. Elijah's great, but Jesus is so much better. Elijah fulfilled the office of prophet and priest for a time, but Jesus is the, the consummation of the roles of prophet, priest, and king for all eternity. Elijah um, mediated on behalf of an ethnic people group. Jesus stands and mediates before his Father for all people, across all nations, tribes, and tongues. In him, we, we now have our Lord. We have our king. We don't need any other earthly king. And his will is perfect. We never need to doubt his policy. We never need to question his action. It's perfect. And his hand is merciful. And in him we have our mediator. We have the priest that, that's not only the priest offering, but the, the, the sacrifice on the altar. He's laid out once and for all for us as a substitute on the altar of the cross. And all of God's righteous, deserving wrath was poured out on him. And instead of us, sorry, and in him we have the perfect prophet, the one whose word stands for all time, whose will is never frustrated, and to whose voice all ears will yield and all knees will bow. That's the Jesus that we worship. And Lord, I just pray that, that as we've um, looked at as we've looked at um, Elijah, as we've looked at the prophets of Baal, as we've looked at the people and their response, Lord, I pray that our hearts will see you. And Holy Spirit, that we would see that, that you have gone before us and you have made a way. That you have, you have offered a way for us to be in the presence of the King for all eternity, in his courts speaking face-to-face -face with the prophet, the priest, and the king. And Lord, I pray that that would just fill us with joy, with peace, and with boldness, Lord, to go and do what you've called us to do. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in the hearts of your people now and, and, and draw them close to your word, into your quiet places where you can speak clearly and where we can hear your voice. So Lord, have your way with us over the weeks coming. In Jesus' name, amen.